And yes, y'all, you are now in tune to the sound of the legendary foundation. Trauma Code to New York City, Trauma Code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. Welcome back to Trauma Code. 
This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald. That was, of course, uh, the Roots crew from Philadelphia. I'm a trauma surgeon in Brooklyn, New York, and my co-host will be here a little bit later. Dr. Cassandra Raphael is a adult and child psychiatrist, uh, and we focus on healing from trauma and how trauma relates to the culture at large. Uh, and of course, when you think of the Roots crew, you think of Philadelphia, and we have with us today uh, one of the excellent trauma surgeons uh, in North Philadelphia, as well as uh, the, I think the director of research, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, for the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting of the Initiative for Better Gun Violence Reporting, Dr. Jessica Beard at Temple University. Dr. Beard, are you with us? Yes, I'm here, Simon. Excellent. Well, first of all, thank you so much for uh, making the time. Uh, clearly, you're very busy with all the roles that you're taking on. And just to, to get our audience a little bit oriented, tell us a little bit about uh, the work you do clinically at the hospital, and then what is your role at the uh, Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting? Yeah, so thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's really a pleasure to get to have a conversation with you. Um, I, like you, I'm a trauma surgeon, so that means that um, I take care of injured people. Um, and in Philadelphia, that means firearm injured people. Temple University Hospital is in North Philadelphia, which is really the epicenter of the gun violence epidemic in our city. Um, last year, we took care of more than 800 firearm injured people in our hospital. Uh, so that's my clinical work. Um, and then I am also, as you mentioned, the director of research for a a local organization called the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting. And with that organization that's headed by Jim McMillan, I do research on the current state of gun violence reporting in our city and how to make gun violence reporting better uh, with the idea that if the public really understood uh, the realities of gun violence uh, and had empathy for its victims and the communities that are impacted, that we would uh, be on our way towards approaching gun violence as the public health problem that it is. And and I know from uh, reviewing uh, a lot of the work that you guys have done um, that one of the one of the sort of the mottos is, you know, would better gun violence reporting reduce gun violence? Um but why is it important for you as a trauma surgeon, do you think, to take on this, this role working with journalists, right, and, and others on gun violence reporting? You know, I think uh, for quite a while, our profession and trauma surgery and really medicine in general has uh, been focused on, you know, taking injured people and, um, you know, patching up the injuries that, that guns cause. And that's really important. It's certainly important for our, our patients um, and their families. But gun violence is preventable, uh, like many illnesses. Uh, but it's it's not really the public doesn't really understand that gun violence doesn't exist in other countries and it doesn't even exist in parts of the cities that haven't been subjected to you know, decades and centuries of disinvestment from law enforcement. We're not hearing from communities. We're not hearing from firearm injured people. And we're not seeing, you know, any public health perspective. And that led me to develop a relationship with Jim McMillan, uh, who founded the Center, Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting, and really start to work to build an evidence base of, um, to help us understand what reporting on gun violence looks like and how we can make it better. Excellent. And uh, let's take a couple minutes for a, a musical break, and then we'll loop in uh, Dr. Raphael as well. Yeah. 
Chain with the chain, we on your head like a bang. All double loss, no rain. Rain, big thing came with a name. Got all eyes on my game. Hundred thousand kiss to rain. Foreign exchange to change. Foreign exchange to change. Run it up, that's it. Run it up. Eminem's whole tick, whole tick. Don't mind if I do it, I get it. I love my brothers, I spit it. Look, mind your business, cause I got some they hidden. Chop out the band, I'm just chopping the chickens, and now I'm on top of the city. Cause I'm mismatching, yeah. The money do backflips, yeah. I flip the mattress. Flip I'm popping my glasses, yeah. I up the status. Now she looking like an actress, yeah. That's a bit of go back, now we gonna magic, yeah. And we got a hundred round. Shoot, you cloud the madness. On the hunt, show to my people, and I cannot go out the saddest. No, don't need no money counter, cause I think my fingers count the fastest. No, I'm not Bruce Wayne, but I keep the fire like a dragon. Stacking up loose change, and I turn it to a mansion. mansion. Boarding a new plane, one phone call when we landing. Know the crew came from the north side of the planet. She see the new chain, she gon' jump right out of her panties. Jump out. Out of a penny Before the trap turned golden I was stacking in the pantry Stacking the pantry And in Hollywood but the name I gotta tell them that Don't nothing change but the change Ooh. We on your head like a bang, bang. All double loss, no rain. rain Big thing came with a name Dang. Got all eyes on my game Hundred thousand kiss to rain Foreign exchange to change Foreign exchange to change Change the chain, chain, fame came with the chain, fame. You get a strike for a stain, strike. You bout to crash out your lane. The umbrella out of the rose was coloring, and no, it came with the rain. Coloring, no letterman. I've been a veteran, do anything for a name, anything. When you start getting a little change, watch how your partners and everything change, change. When you step foot in that field, make sure you strap and make sure you got aim. My n they shooting the live. I see some they shooting for fame. Nah, they don't know that real. That's how you end up getting blowed out your brains. The money, the car, the chains, and fame. I I give up everything. Why? To see my grandma, just to see my can pick up the d ain't hell out of pain. No cap. I get you knocked up for earth. You play with my body, you play with my name. Play with it. I wear them up like he served. If be looking strange, I pay this brain. Don't play with me. I'm rocking the watch with no diamonds in it. It cost me a ticket, this plane. I put baguettes in the paddock, what time is it? And it cost me a rose insane. Rose. I don't post pics with sticks and sh That's how them boys get fried. Welcome back to Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald. I'm here with Dr. Raphael. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. I've been listening in on Dr. Beard and her very insightful comments on how we talk about gun violence, a very, very important topic. And, of course, that music was uh, Takeoff and Quavo. Um, Takeoff, of course, part of, both part of the Migos um, group. Takeoff was, unfortunately, murdered earlier this month. I'm admittedly not a huge Migos fan, um, but obviously uh, very talented and a huge loss, um, of potential, you know, we we know have no way of knowing what his future would have uh, would have held, and and that is now lost forever. Um, right, and and such is the case, right, for for most victims of of violence, of gun violence. When we lose life, we just don't know, you know, what else we might be losing, who we might be losing, um, and and that's very apparent when we're talking about you know high profile folks who who are shot dead. But I think one of the points that Dr. Beard is trying to make is that. You know, we should talk as compassionately about everybody who who passes away um, due to gun violence um, and with a little bit more perspective, a little bit more context. Um, and, and Dr. Beard, you're still with us, I hope. 
curious. And right before that break, you were talking about um, how you were struck that the way that gun violence reporting or what you called episodic crime reporting in the media, um, how distressing basically you found it, uh, that it didn't center the communities or the narratives of the survivors. Can you talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done to create other media, other narratives, or, or better ways of reporting on gun violence and survivors? Uh, sure. So um, one of the things that was sort of kind of naturally came out of this concern around uh, the impacts of episodic crime reporting is uh, trying to understand what firearm injured people uh, think about reports on their own injuries. Um, it's not uncommon to actually hear a patient mention something about their news report on their shooting or usually the lack thereof. Um, I've also, you know, had experiences where I've been told by patients' family members that they already saw uh, the status of the patient on the news before I'm able to talk to them. Um, and, you know, so those are kind of real-time, real-life effects that, are, that can be negative about uh, reporting on gun violence. And so what we, what we did was we, we interviewed our patients and we asked them about reporting on their own injuries and about firearm violence in general. And this was what's called a qualitative interview study. We talked to 26 firearm injured people, people who'd survived fire, their firearm injuries within two months of their injuries in our trauma clinic at Temple. Um, and what we found is that about half of them didn't see any uh, news reports about their injuries. And this is goes with our other research that basically shows that about half of shootings don't make the news at all. Uh, none of the folks that we talked to was ever contacted by a journalist. So that means for the half of people who did make the news, who did see news reports about their shootings, it certainly wasn't from their perspective because they didn't get to tell their story. And we saw really for the first time that we've seen in kind of any sort of academic setting, um, the, the perspectives of people who are the subject of episodic crime reports. And our patients told us that they experienced numerous harms of episodic crime reporting, um, specifically uh, that uh, reporting about them in that way made them feel dehumanized. Um, I can read you a quotation from one of our patients. She said, they didn't ask me any questions. There was no calls made to me or talk to me personally. They didn't tell the story from my perspective. It was like she was shot and that's it. I would prefer if they asked me specific feelings about me, if they actually interviewed me instead of just writing it like I'm a nobody. Um, you know, and we heard, you know, that's an incredibly powerful experience to have after you've already been shot, or after you've already experienced that trauma, to feel like the, the stories that are being told about you are so dehumanizing and so negative. Another things that came up that, that the patients told us was, um, you know, there's just an incredible stigma of being a firearm injured person in Philadelphia. And when their family members, uh, one patient's family members saw some of the reports about him, uh, they called him and asked him, you know, what were you doing? Uh, and we heard a lot that these episodic crime reports, the, you know, shooting event narratives, they carry this um, Im implied guilt of the person whose firearm injured. And if they don't ex include exculpatory language, um, you know, which that's also really questionable whether they should include that, right? Because it, 
just because somebody isn't innocent doesn't mean that they deserve to be shot. But if they don't say, you know, innocent man shot in North Philly, then people, you know, assume things about uh, about uh, the person whose firearm injured. And then finally, um, a, a very insightful uh, participant in our study uh, mentioned that that the kind of culminating effect of episodic crime stories, stories that lack context, that lack the voices of firearm injured people and that lack solutions make people fearful. And that fear can contribute to, a, you know, a cycle of gun violence. Uh, and this person suggested that, you know, fearful people arm themselves. And we certainly did see a spike in, in gun ownership during the pandemic associated with the spike in gun violence that we saw. And of course, we know that owning a firearm um, actually increases your risk of being shot. Um, but you arm yourself and then you know, that kind of contributes to this cycle of gun violence. So there's a lot of kind of interconnected parts uh, uh, with how the media tells the stories, how it impacts victims and communities most impacted and maybe even re-traumatizes them when it's not empathetic and uh, contextualized. And, you know, how it can affect our community at large in terms of, you know, missing opportunities for education around solutions. And, you know, what's... Um kind of scarier or compelling about when we see these narratives so regularly um, in, in, the, in the media, we become blind to it. And I, I remember there's some media critics in Baltimore that started to point out that uh, the Baltimore Sun, that the paper of record, was describing, uh, you know, minors who were shot as juveniles. And that language really only makes sense in the context of, you know, the court system, the so-called juvenile justice system. And like you said, it was the, the language of the reporting because it be, was basically written, you know, from the police precinct almost, from the perspective of the police, um, completely lost sight of of the of the humanity of, of the of the young people who had been shot. Um, and I, you know, think of myself as a very sophisticated, you know, trauma surgeon. I it didn't occur to me I had been blind to that because I'd been reading it so much. So um, I I definitely agree with you, and I think how we use language is is so powerful at times it can almost be invisible. I mean, I think that it's even deeper than language. I think that um, words like juvenile, male, um, even the data that's collected and presented within the episodic uh, crime narrative, you know, it's the information that the police collect about firearm injured people. And, you know, ultimately it is, you know, the police's story, the police's narrative. And one of the things that we do a lot when we discuss episodic crime stories with journalists and, you know, sort of reimagine them is to help journalists understand, you know, they kind of approach things. They don't want to be advocates. It's actually interesting because it's so different than, you know, our profession, whereas doctors, you know, we're, we're required to be advocates for our patients. Um, but Fundamentally, if you are presenting, you know, the police narrative as as fact uh, without questioning it, without seeking another um, source, which is part of their kind of ethical code, then you're really becoming a police advocate in some ways. And I think your your point around that that word around juvenile and how sort of dehumanizing it is, but also how it um, really outlines where these narratives are coming from. Uh, is is really important. And I will just say one more thing. When we talked with our patients and interviewed them, we actually had to, uh, almost with every person, clarify that we were talking about media reports and not police reports. 
um, because from the, the at least the folks who participated in our study, the the connection in their mind was so clear and and so tight between media and police, um, and that's really where I think some of the concerns about even talking to media come from. Um, and that's something that we will really need to be overcome for, uh, you know, our local journalists to tell these stories more deeply. And the other thing that struck me about um, the patients you were talking about, how they were, they felt invisible, unseen by media reports on their shooting. Um, Dr. Rafael, not working with media, but you've worked with young people um, and survivors in the community after um, after deadly violence and helping them process, I, it'd be interested to hear what you know, how, what you think that experience uh, has speaks to this and in, in helping young people feel seen. And how 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 can we help young people process this kind of trauma? Right. So um, I've described previously on well on previous episodes of the show that I, I created this facts on feelings uh, mental health workshop for for teenagers basically, and I worked with one group of teenagers who. In the midst of the workshop, uh, they lost one classmate to to uh, an episode of gun violence. Just really <laughs> quite horrific, actually. And because the organization that I work with um, had that mental health alliance already in myself and in my my colleague who I created the the mental health workshop with that infrastructure that infrastructure right because we they already had that that relationship with us we could pretty quickly organize a process group for the classmates of the child who, who was shot dead. Um, and so we got to hear a lot from the people who were kind of, you know, seemed somewhat peripheral to it. But then it, it was a learning experience for me because, you, you you know, when you read about it in like, you know, or you hear about it in the media, it, it's presented one way and it always sounds, you know, awful because we are talking about a child. But then when you get the perspective of other children who knew that child, um, and, and what they will miss about that child and, and how, you know, they feel that something is lacking in, in their experience at school or in the community without that child is when you kind of, you get to put a comprehensive picture together and you realize that a lot of information is lacking when you're talking about, uh, these violent deaths in the media. Um, um, and one thing that you also mentioned was about how we talk about, how we talk about the victims of gun violence. And especially when we're talking about kids, I mean, I'm a child psychiatrist, so I, I have a little bit more experience with that specifically, is one one person I'd like to call a mentor. She was a uh, one of the past American Psychiatric Association presidents. She came to speak uh, when I was a trainee in Brooklyn, and she was saying how, you know, we shouldn't call them juveniles anyway, even if they're kids who are involved in the justice system um, and are patients even then, you know, be mindful, call them justice involved youth, you know, because juvenile just does have a, a negative connotation and accusatory connotation to that. Um, and it can be, it, it is definitely more humanizing. It kind of, you, you still, you're still calling them a youth or a child or, a, you know, a boy or a girl or, you know, and, and that kind of reminds us that there's an innocence, there's an experience there or a lack of experience that, and, and, and somebody's injured. What, they're the victim, I guess. Right, they're not, the victim. Not a they're perpetrator. Victim. Not a exactly. perpetrator. In this is exactly, exactly. Um, and you don't want to lose sight of of the person as a whole when you're kind of describing these experiences. And what struck me about your experience with, uh, you know, working with youth processing violence, even though in certain communities uh, and in certain contexts, 
violence is so normalized and so accepted. There's no infrastructure to respond to it. In, in you know, in, in this kind of um, working with youth to pr- to process, you know, focus groups and things, I don't think that's common at all. Um, yeah, I, it isn't very common. There wasn't very. I mean, we had very little time to kind of set it up. So what we did was to gather psychiatry trainees, um, therapists of all kinds, art therapists, um, psychologists, um, and we also worked with the Kings Against Violence Initiative, like community mediators. So these are people who are younger than me, but older than the students, and they have some experience with helping people mediate um, after after episodes of violence or kind of. They have they have healing abilities in their in their kind in their relationships with the community, um, and I think including people who kind of were able to relate very well to to the young people that we were working with was very helpful. But there should absolutely be more research done, more work done on seeing what is helpful for the people kind of on the periphery of these of these crimes. Like, how can we help them? I think. In psychiatry, what I read is that it's not entirely clear that the process group is very helpful for everybody. It can be helpful for many people, but it's not necessarily helpful for everybody. But what the process group can help do is identify folks who might have a more difficult time in the aftermath of the violence. So there's still some value in in kind of studying that as a modality and figuring out how we can make that more helpful or how to then reach out to folks who seem like they might have a difficult time after the process group. And and Dr. Beard, in a, a brief conversation that we've had before, you mentioned uh, some work that you've done with one of your patients and their families, uh, creating uh, their own narrative, uh, their own media around their uh, their survival of gun violence. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Uh, yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up. I was actually just thinking about it when uh, Dr. Raphael was talking about her work. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we found from the the patients who were not in the news was actually that they didn't expect to be on the news and they felt relief relief that their episodic story wasn't on the news. That's sort of the general consensus. And that really points to sort of how um, unaligned with with the story the news is. But to me, that doesn't mean that people don't want to tell their stories. It means that people don't want to tell their stories within or have their stories told without their mm-hmm. perspective. And it also means that immediately in the aftermath of a shooting is probably not the best time to tell someone's story, right, when they're acutely traumatized. So the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting has uh, a program called the Credible Messengers Reporting Project. And what it does is it brings... Um, people with lived experience of uh, firearm injury who want to tell their stories uh, together in collaboration with professional journalists who have more experience with storytelling uh, to basically um, create a a piece of media. Uh, And so I got involved uh, with that myself um, when I had a patient that I was taking care of for a couple of years. and he and his mom came to my clinic and, you know, he had essentially healed from his um, uh, surgeries, all the many surgeries that he had to have, but he really hadn't, you know, healed emotionally and he's still working on that. Um, but his mom asked, well, what can I do? You know, how can I, you know, share this experience? Cause it was really very difficult, but also transformative for her. So, um, she, uh, participated in that in that project along with um, uh, my patient. And it was just an incredible process because, 
you know, I've been interviewed by lots of journalists and usually I, um, you know, answer the questions that they ask. Uh, and I can imagine as a, you know, co-victim of gun violence, that's really hard because you're never sure, you know, what story is going to get told and if you're going to be able to tell your story. But what we did for this was just hours and hours of her recording her thoughts and then working with the documentarians at Kuvenda Media and, and ultimately making a product that I'm really proud of that is Tashawn's full narrative um, of what it's like to be a mom uh, taking care of a son who's... Uh, survived a non-fatal firearm injury. So if you have it, if you'd like to listen, it's, it's on our website, um, uh, on PCGVR and it's called stronger every day, stronger every day. Uh, yes. You can look that up online. Definitely encourage that. Um, and you know, in, in my work, um, in some of the anti-violence work that I've done outside of the hospital, um, I, I remember one of the more powerful moments, um, uh, when I was a fellow, I was part of a group that would go out to the places where people had been killed um, and work that I still do at times and, and be present with the community and say a prayer um, and say the patient's name, say the person's name um, so that they're seen and, and also sort of try to be healing in that space, which is so traumatic. You know, at times we would go there and the blood would still be on the sidewalk and we would arrange to have it washed off. Um, and, and one time uh, we went out there, I saw the mother of, you know, a patient that I'd seen in the hospital that, that had passed away. Um, and just the, there was like a power in that moment where we sort of realized who each other was. Um, and, um, and I always felt that that was sort of, we didn't quite know what to do with that. And so I, I'm, I, I, I think that the work that you did in that longer term and, and creating this project was sort of taking that, that moment, that idea and, and, and having something created out of it. So I, I really find that very compelling and encourage people to listen to it. Thanks for saying that. I think, I think that, you know, anybody in any profession, but specifically what I know about doctors and trauma surgeons, you know, I think that the confines of our profession, um, can, can be broken down. You know, I, I think that we, if, if we can, if we're able, um, you know, I think we can think of our work extending outside of the hospital, um, into places where, you know, we're members of our community and, and really making a difference there and using, you know, the things that we know how to do using our, um, uh, you know, perspectives, our research, a lot of times research just goes into, you know, a, a vacuum and it doesn't get shared, you know, using all of the things that, that we do to ad really advocate for our patients. And I, I would say, you know, I don't know much about Temple except what I've read in the media, but I imagine that your former chair of surgery, now dean of, uh, I guess, the medical school at Temple, Amy Goldberg, Dr. Amy Goldberg, um, has been uh, such a, I think, an important leader in, in reimagining what it can mean to be a trauma surgeon, how we can take care of patients and communities. Um, so, and I imagine that, you know, you're working within that infrastructure has given you the space to, to, to do some of this work. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, certainly in in our hospital, you know, there's a, um, a strong acknowledgement of, you know, the importance of violence prevention, the importance of, you know, uh, centering the, the needs of our patients and um, being advocates for them. So it's it's in, in that way, it's a great environment uh, to work in. 
And but there, you know, there's people all over the place like you and, and other folks all over the country, people who have mentored me um, in San Francisco and other places that are inspirational as well. Sure, so sure. And we have that, a lot of great role models. <laughs> definitely. And, and um, you know, people who are just sort of vaguely following lay media might be aware of, of Dr. Goldberg um, in uh, some of her work with the media after, I think after Sandy Hook, some mass shootings related to um, high velocity firearms, um, I think it was called What Bullets Do to Bodies, um, really trying to to shock people in, into responding in, in a more forceful way to this kind of gun violence, particularly with military-grade assault rifles. Um, and she compared it to the open casket funeral for Emmett Till um, to not, to not you know, be blinded um, from, from the effects of this violence. And again, we're on uh, Trauma Code on uh, WBAI with Dr. Jessica Beard from the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting. Have you seen a change, um, do you think, related to your work with journalists, improving the way that gun violence is covered locally and media, you know, regionally or nationally? Well, you know, I don't know that this change is going to be very sweet. Swift, you know, I think that the eyewitness breaking news um, uh, model is, although it's relatively new, it's quite kind of well entrenched uh, within the way that um, TV news, at least, is telling the stories of gun violence. We've seen some really great strides being made um, uh, with our local uh, NPR station. We have two gun violence prevention reporters. Um, whose sole job is to actually uh, kind of research and build community connections and tell uh, solution stories about gun violence. And so that's really exciting. That's that those positions exist, at least in some part, um, and probably a large part due to the advocacy of the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting. Back in September, uh, we held a workshop um, that was actually held at a historic house in in the Germantown neighborhood of Philadelphia, which is a neighborhood that is uh, impacted by gun violence. So it was a nice community setting, outdoor space. And we brought together people with lived experience of firearm violence, um, including my patient and his mother, um, and uh, folks from our center who are survivors, uh, journalists from all of our local stations, including including TV news, which we were really excited about that they were engaged. Um, and then also some uh, folks from academia, journalism, scholars, and uh, public health experts into conversation around uh, better gun violence reporting. And uh, we actually partnered with a human-centered design lab called the Better Lab in San Francisco um, to, you know, they helped us. We had a kind of a program uh, uh, that was uh, relatively short, but kind of set the stage. And then they helped us um, within groups brainstorm solutions and then prototype some solutions. Uh, and people were really engaged in this uh, in this process. Um, and uh, we have a couple of kind of winning uh, prototype solutions that we're working on in our next phase to actually uh, implement. Um, one of them is uh, a hub that uh, brings together uh, uh, people with experience of fire and violence and uh, journalists to tell stories um, you know, a little different than our reporting project, it would be more of a, kind of a roving space for conversation and, and kind of education for journalists. And that would, you know, hopefully be paired with um, education in trauma-informed journalism uh, about gun violence uh, for our local journalists. They were really interested in, in more education around being trauma-informed and how to interact with um 
of fire injured people and, and their families and communities. So, you know, those, those are, um, things that we're looking forward to kind of working on, uh, and, and working towards that narrative change. Excellent. Well, let's, let's take another musical break. Uh, and then we'll get right back with it. This is Trauma Code on the air with Dr. Jessica Beard of the uh, Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting. Yeah. Anxiety. People call me rude cause I ain't letting them try me Saying I'm a cause I'm in love with my body Issues but nobody I can talk to about it They keep saying I should get help But I don't even know what I need They keep saying speak your truth And at the same time say they don't believe Man, excuse me while I get into my feelings for a second Usually I keep it damn, but today I gotta tell it Not that anybody gives a fuck anyway But everybody talking probably sucks anyway Yeah, I don't even know how I feel I don't even know how I deal Today I really hate everybody And that's just me being real Yeah, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday Bad they have bad days too Friday, Saturday, Sunday Bounce back, high bad I always do All I really wanna hear is it'll be okay Bounce back cause a bad can have bad days All I really wanna hear is it'll be okay Bounce back cause a bad can have bad days If I could write a letter to heaven I would tell my mama that I should've been listening And I would tell her sorry that I really been wildin' And ask her to forgive me cause I really been trying. And I would ask please show me who been real And get them from around me if they all been fake It's crazy how I said the same prayer to the Lord And I always get surprised about who he take Man, I'm really thinking about dialing 911 till I free Cause they probably won't think it's that deep And I don't do drugs So I never get a time when I'm at ease I can't even handle smoking weed Marilyn Monroe My favorite My favorite bad I think she the GOAT Jamming to Britney Singing to Whitney I just won't talk to somebody that get me Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday Bad they have bad days too Friday, Saturday, Sunday Bounce back, high bad I always do All I really wanna hear is it'll be okay Bounce back cause a bad can have bad days All I really wanna hear is it'll be okay Bounce back cause a bad can have bad days Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday Bad they have bad days too Friday, Saturday, Sunday Bounce back, high bad I always do All I really wanna hear is it'll be okay Bounce back cause a bad can have bad days All I really wanna hear is it'll be okay Bounce back cause a bad can have bad days Welcome back to Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald again with Dr. Cassandra Raphael and our guest, Dr. Jessica Beard from the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting. We just had a short uh, little musical interlude there. That was Megan Thee Stallion with her uh, new hit. Is it called Anxiety? Yes, I believe it's called uh, Anxiety. Um, and of course, she's also a survivor of gun violence herself. Yes, she is. And um, that's kind of Putting a little bit into context, her her new initiatives that she's um, that she's kind of bringing in called I guess bad bees have bad days too. I believe um, that was the lyric. Yes, I believe that is the lyric. That was the radio safe version. Yes, exactly. We're, we're keep, keeping on with that, but um, she's Megan Thee Stallion has taken some important steps in kind of bringing mental health awareness and mental health services, making them more accessible to the community. She has a whole website up about it, um, and and. Going back to the the gun violence topic that we're discussing today, she was a victim of gun violence uh, at the hands of, I guess, somebody that she thought was a friend or a, a, a colleague, a, another celebrity, let's just say. And she, you know, has been pretty public about her experience. And, and then, you know, there's a lot of talk about 
you know, how she ended up in this situation and, you know, and other celebrities have had, have had some commentary about, about her experience as well, but she's been pretty straightforward about kind of establishing boundaries. She wants to be believed. She wants to be, um, doesn't matter if she, you know, if she was with whoever in that circumstance, it was a bad situation for her. And she's very, very clear about kind of establishing, like I said, establishing that, that boundary about what, you know, in what situation she feels safe and what she, and what she doesn't and, and how, victims of gun violence should be heard and should be believed. And, and that kind of lends a lot to the discussion that we're having today. And interestingly, she also was very reluctant to talk to the media at all, or even the police um, at first, I think for days or even weeks. Um, so it speaks to that same uh, uh, suspicion about media reporting on gun violence. That's right. That's right. And who, and how it makes her look or, or how it might be perceived, how it might be interpreted by other people. Um, it, yeah, very much in, in, in context with what we're talking about today with Dr. Beard. And, you know, one thing that I've been kind of thinking about with, with the rising importance of social media, you know, for example, when I'm working with, uh, at our hospital-based violence intervention, uh, groups, and if there's a change in the dynamic of violence in the community, sometimes I ask, how do you know what's going on, what this is about? Um, and often it's, you know, an Instagram page or something else on the social media. That gives you a better sense of, of what the community dynamic is. So, so what about that, Dr. Beard? What is, what is the role of this kind of gun violence reporting in the era of social media? Do you guys try to have a social media presence or how does that impact your work? Yeah, I, that's a great question. Um, you know, mostly, uh, we focused on, uh, reporting on gun violence on TV news uh, and then also other sort of traditional news outlets. Uh, but one thing that we found in talking to our patients is that, as you mentioned, uh, they're, they're watching TV, but they're also getting a lot of their news from social media and specifically, um, you know, the, the places where they saw information about, about themselves, uh, was on several of Instagram pages or, um, that are specifically devoted to gun violence in Philadelphia. And, you know, different than on TV news, although there are some very graphic uh, imagery on TV news of, of shootings, uh, you, you, on those pages, you can see sort of private videos of people getting shot and, and people being placed into police cars. And we heard from our patients how um, sort of traumatizing it was to watch yourself in, in that type of situation. Um, so I think, you know, it's a little bit more challenging to engage in folks on Instagram, uh, you know, who are running these sites, uh, you know, when it comes to sort of ethical standards of, of media reporting. You do see a lot of, of TV news reports, too, on those sites. So I think that that's, that's the place that we've chosen to start. But you're absolutely right that, um, you know, social media is a really important, uh, you know, place to look and see if there's uh, trauma happening there. In terms of the Center for Gun Violence reporting, we do have, uh, you know, an active social media presence uh, with conversations on, on Twitter. Um, and, you know, we have a newsletter that we send by email, um, but it's certainly an area that we're looking to grow as well. And, uh, you know, we, we talked, I, maybe I brought it up a little bit about uh, high, high velocity firearms, uh, assault rifles. And, you know, there's a little bit of talk right now, and I think uh, President Biden has advocated for an assault weapons ban. Um, have, have you chosen uh, to engage in that policy kind of debate? Is, is there any role, you think, for reporting in, in informing that kind of debate? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, one of the kind of other areas of advocacy that I've been involved in is going to our state legislature in Harrisburg to advocate for evidence-based uh, policies that would prevent gun violence. You know, I'm, I'm sure as you know, but I'm not sure if the listeners know that, you know, we've had a, a long period of, um, you know, missing research, missing scholarship on, on gun violence due to, frankly, what is censorship by our government, uh, stemming from the Dickey Amendment back in the mid-1990s. And so really about in the past decade or even less, there's been an explosion of investigations looking at um, what policies are effective at preventing gun violence. Um, obviously, the assault weapons ban, you know, is, in my opinion, is, you know, sort of a no-brainer. You know, these large-scale mass shootings would not be possible without assault weapons. But also, you know, very important is to consider um, policies that are uh, going to prevent the gun violence that we're talking about, you know, community gun violence. So, you know, universal background checks, permit to purchase and other um, policies that have been uh, shown to uh, be associated with decreased firearm homicide rates are really important um, to, you know, educate yourself about and then uh, be advocates for. Excellent. Well, anything else that you want to tell us about your work before uh, we move towards wrapping up the, the episode? No, I mean, I think I really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. Um, and I think, you know, if there's anything to kind of come away from this with, it's that, you know, you can, you know, move outside of sort of the confines of wherever you are and whoever you are into your community and, and try to make some impact there. So hopefully people will be inspired to do that. Excellent. And I definitely encourage everyone to look up uh, the the sort of the podcast that you did uh, with your patient. Remind us what that was called? Uh, Stronger Every Day. Stronger Every Day, which was focusing on the experience of a mother uh, taking care of a survivor of, uh, of gun violence. Um, and now, uh, while we still have you on the air, I always like to ask for kind of a cultural recommendation, a book, a movie, uh, music. Uh, performing art, anything uh, you want to bring to the attention of our listeners that they might not otherwise uh, know about. Yeah, I would be happy to. So the book that I'm reading right now, which I don't get to read that much because I have two small children. Um, tell it's me about called, it. Tell what'd you say? I said, tell me about it. You're getting a lot of, <laughs> you're getting a lot of sympathy over here. <laughs> actually, I, ha- I actually have two books. <laughs> so I'll tell you, one of them is the one that I'm reading to my seven-year-old. Uh, but the one that I'm hoping to read myself that I've read a bit of is called Listen World. It's how the intrepid Elsie Robinson became America's most read woman. Um, and it's about Elsie Robinson, who was a journalist uh, back at the turn of the century from California and just about her feminism. So I'm really excited about that. And then the book, My Children Love Ghost Stories and Macabre Things. So I'm reading them Doll Bones, which is by Holly Black. And it's like, a, you know, a novel about this group of friends going on a quest um, with a doll. Very cool. We, we do also love the, the, the child-friendly uh, recommendations. That's very exciting. That's something I hadn't actually heard of that yet, so I'll look into it. Yeah, we're still yeah. kind of working through anti-racist baby. but um, <laughs> uh, Yes. <laughs> but All right, excellent. Very good. All right, well, thank you again for, for joining us, Jessica. This has been uh, Trauma Code with uh, Dr. Jessica Beard of the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting. Uh, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Beard. You're broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. 
you can't find a fighter But I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out Move mountains We gon' walk it out and Dr. Raphael here, co-host of The Trauma Code with Dr. Fitzgerald. We just want to uh, reach out, touch base with you guys a little bit. We want to know how how you're receiving the information. We want to know if you guys have any questions, any comments. We want to give you a little bit of access to us. So traumacodewbai at gmail.com is how to reach us by email. Again, that's traumacodewbai at gmail.com to reach us by email. And for now, we're uh, still on Twitter. We'll see one foot out the door, but uh, if you use that platform, trauma code WBAI is the handle uh, on Twitter. And of course, you can find us on the uh, WBAI.org website as well. And uh, next week, we're going to have an excellent guest on uh, RSV and and, uh, uh, what's going on right now with uh, young people getting sick and how to prevent it and how to take care of them. So look forward to it. Things happen fast on the street. When you're driving, your speed can feel slow. But if you hit someone, it's terrifyingly fast. Drivers, look for pedestrians and cyclists and slow your turns to five miles per hour. Speeding ruins lives. Slow down. This message brought to you by the New York City Vision Zero Initiative. are still around. It's a good thing there are new boosters targeted to take them out. The new bivalent boosters are here. Bullseye! Everyone five and older should get boosted today. To learn more, visit nyc.gov slash vaccine finder or call 877-VAX4NYC. That message brought to you by the New York City Department of Health. This is WBAI New York. Good afternoon. 
For WPFW Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Darnia Samuels. Here are some headlines for this hour. The city of Chesapeake, Virginia, will be holding a candlelight vigil tonight in honor of the victims of last week's mass shooting at an area Walmart. Six employees were killed, while six others were wounded by a store supervisor after he opened fire on his co-workers late Tuesday night. The six individuals who were gunned down range in age from 16 to 70. They were Fernando Jesus Chavez Barone, age 16, Tanika Johnson, age 22, Brian Pendleton, age 38, Lorenzo Gamble, age 43, Kelly Pyle, age 52, and Randy Blevins, age 70. Sixteen-year-old Fernando, the youngest victim, had just started driving and got his first part-time job at that Walmart to help his family, and he used his first paycheck to buy a gift for his mother. Fifty-two-year-old Kelly Pyle had recently moved back to the Chesapeake area after reconnecting with her high school sweetheart, whom she planned to marry next year. The candlelight vigil for the innocent lives lost is to begin at 6 p.m. tonight at Chesapeake City Park. Zero COVID. That's the policy that China is abiding by, but it is starting to get under the skin of many of the country's residents who are showing their frustration with protests, calling for the resignation of China's president, which is the biggest show of opposition to the ruling Communist Party in decades. Those who have been protesting in China for the last three days are frustrated because the country's strict COVID protocols prevented firefighters from reaching residents who were trapped in a burning building last week, which resulted in at least 10 deaths. In honor of those victims, hundreds gathered in Shanghai for a candlelight vigil where clashes with police were caught on camera. In response to the protests, the city government of Beijing announced today that it would no longer set up gates to block access to apartment compounds where COVID infections are found, although they made no mention of last week's deadly fire. So while the Chinese authorities have eased some antivirus rules, they still affirmed their zero COVID strategy today. To your local news, in New York City, Mayor Eric Adams has signed new legislation to address the lack of diversity among members of the New York Fire Department, or FDNY. This new legislation, which was signed today, includes a package of five bills, which aims to improve recruitment and retention of underrepresented groups within the department. As recently as a few months ago, just 8% of the New York Fire Department personnel were black, 2% were Asian, and only 1% were women. This compares to recent statistics that shows New York City's general population is 21% black, 15% Asian, and 52% female. In addition, this new legislation will mandate diversity, inclusion, anti-discrimination, and anti-harassment training for FDNY personnel. In today's weather, it's currently about 51 degrees in New York and 54 degrees in D.C. That's all for your headline news this hour. For WPFW Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Darnia Samuels. Please be safe and thank you for listening. And a previous program was Trauma Code Heard Wednesdays. Heard Mondays at 2 p.m. here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online.